You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, and marketing. In this episode, we're focusing on the latter, as co-founder and chief strategy officer Des Trainer sits down with Intercom's senior director of marketing, Matt Hodges. Matt came our way from a little company you might have heard of called Atlassian, where he looked after the marketing position and growth of the Confluence and HipChat products. When Matt joined Intercom in March of 2014, our marketing headcount rose from zero to one. In the time since, he's been instrumental in shaping Intercom's go-to-market around the jobs-to-be-done methodology. He's also built a full team of product marketers based in San Francisco and Dublin. Our interview with Matt dives into what he's learned in two and a half years at marketing Intercom, including how to uncover the job your product is hired for, and use that as a tool to inform your marketing story. What types of content am I going to produce that are going to attract the right audiences? What are the right topics of interest to the people that could hire this product? How to prioritize which product updates and features are worth shouting about? We have this classification system, and it becomes really valuable in helping you understand what level of investment of marketing do we put into each announcement that we make? And where startups should look when it's time to scale their own marketing department. If you're a product-first company, start off by hiring someone in product marketing. So let's hand things over to Des and get into his interview with Matt Hodges. Hey, Matt. How you doing, Des? Very well, thank you. Maybe as a sort of warm-up for our, our listeners, you could tell us, how did you arrive at Intercom? What made you want to be our first marketing hire? Yeah, great question. Uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, I was at Atlassian, uh, Australian software company, mostly known for their products like Jira and Confluence and HipChat. And uh, I'd been working for them for about six years at the time, seeing them grow from 90 people to over 1,000. And uh, I was ready for something new. And um, uh, looking through my LinkedIn email box, I'd got a mail from a company called Intercom, and I'd never heard of them before. On first impression, I was like, who is this enterprise company that's hitting me up? Um, but, you know, cut a long story short, uh, I ended up on Intercom's marketing site, um, got a good sense for what their product does, uh, thought, hey, that's something that I'd actually want to use myself. So I thought the product looked great. Um, but then I got stuck on the blog for about three hours and started to get a sense of, wow, these are some really, really smart people. I could probably learn a lot from them. Uh, and then I met Owen and I met yourself and uh, the rest is history. You must be the only person who reads your LinkedIn emails. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I've since stopped. <laughs> All right. yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> um, I know when you started, one of the things that we were keen to like warm you up on was this idea of like jobs to be done, right? And we had no clue what that really meant from or how it would vibe with your perspective from marketing. Up until that point, we had no marketing, so we had no real appreciation of how valuable it would be from a marketing perspective. What was it like to warm up to it? How did you, you know, sort of take to it? Yeah, I'd never heard of jobs to be done prior to landing on the Inside Intercom blog and, and since learning a lot about it. And uh, I think it's an incredibly powerful tool uh, once you get your head around it. And I think the kind of that moment for me or moments for me when I really understood what it was and how I could potentially apply this to how we take a product to market was Clay Christensen's classic milkshake video. If you haven't seen that, I'd highly recommend you watch it. Um, it just you know, made me think, wow, that's a really different way to think about why someone would buy a milkshake. 
Uh, and then, of course, the uh, workshop or consultancy gig that we did with the Rewired group um, going back two years ago now. And really starting to see as you dive into the conversations that you have with people, the patterns that emerge and the common language that they use to describe why they hired a product when they're really, really pushed on it. That was really kind of validation to me that there's something behind this and we could definitely apply this in how we take it and come to market. Um, was it like a change in behavior for you or like, you know, like, was it the case that you're like, oh, well, I used to do it this way and I'm going to do it the jobs we don't way. Or was it that it was a, a reframing of how you always thought the world was like, how did it change you as a marketer? For me, it was really taking like two to three steps back and understanding what is that one reason that someone is hiring your product in the first place. And once you get to that point, it kind of the rest flows from there. But in you know, my previous experience, I'd probably lean too much towards persona-based marketing, um, which is what a, a lot of marketers tend to do. You think about, all right, who are the different types of people buying my product and why? And uh, while that's a very valid approach, and I think it is still a valid approach, paired with jobs to be done, it just comes at a later phase. What often ends up happening is you uh, focus too much on marketing what you want to sell rather than what people actually want to buy. Um, so yeah, I'd say I kind of moved away from purely focusing on personas and really starting with the job, but persona-based marketing can come later and adds value to the job yeah. speed on approach. The piece that I've kind of come to appreciate about personas is that like jobs are excellent for letting you frame the offering in a way your customers understand and actually have a desire for, but they don't tell you where to reach your customers, right? So like at, at some point it is still useful to know like, well, if, you know, if I'm trying to target 18 to 25 year olds, I won't put up ads in like in old age folks homes, you know, like yep. there, there is some like rationale you can make where like, it's like, well, it would be useful to know what conferences these people attend or what blogs they read or whatever. And in that regard, it is useful to know more about your user. I think, you know, we've certainly talked and written about like, uh, being a bit more anti-persona from a product standpoint, but I think there's still like legitimate use cases when you're actually trying to work ahead or reach people. Uh, Ab absolutely, yeah. reach, uh, you know, whether that be at conferences and speaking mm -hmm. at conferences where you're going to meet the right people and the right audiences of people that could potentially hire your products. You know, the next phase from that that I like to talk about is attracting people and what types of content am I going to produce that are going to attract the right audiences? What are the right topics of interest to the people that could hire this product? Um, and then when you start to actually think about the convince phase, which is convincing them that you have a product that can be hired for the job they need to get done, personas is actually really important once you've kind of nailed down that you know, high level job, it's really important to frame it in the right way right. for the different audiences. So you are gonna have different personas that are gonna hire your product for a job, but they're gonna talk about it in a different way. They might use different language. Yeah. Certain things that help them perform that job are gonna be more important than others. So having an understanding of the audience or personas is important for helping you understand what to focus on when you're talking to a different set of audiences. Is that like things like, so knowing like, you know, the way in which you convince like a VP at a 2000 person company is different than the way you convince a head of product at a six person company, right? Like they're, you know, the former is all about, they're going to care about like ROI and the latter is going to care about experience and just good product, right? Like yeah, I think, you know, to give a really simple example, um, if you look at, uh, Intercom's Engage product, which uh, is a product for marketing and growth teams to help new users see value in the product they've just bought or signed up for. Um, 
the things that are going to be important for uh, a product marketer, which is a, you know, a classic persona or a person who would use this product, are going to be things like, does the composer work? Am I going to be able to create the best looking messages? And I, am I going to be able to target the right audiences? Mm-hmm. And then to your point, Des, you know, if I'm selling to you know, a C-level executive, they're going to care about is the money that I'm spending on this product going to bring me back more money at the end of the day? So things like reporting and showing return on investment are important yeah. to that persona, who is also a persona for this job. Yeah, totally. And somebody who like even even if you are selling to the product marketer, the C-level might be involved in buy-in anyway. So you still kind of need to have more than one way to pitch it, right? Exactly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the job remains yeah. the same. Yeah. Something you drilled hard into us early on was the need to like get the story of a product right. And there's a lot of precedent for this in the world. Like Amazon famously have this like uh, work backwards philosophy where they start with, you know, no one writes a line of code until the press release is complete. So they really have a very clear idea of what the story is. What's going on there exactly? Like, Why is it you need to work on a story independent of a product? Is the product not the story? Like, why, why is this thing separate? A very powerful quote that I like to use is that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And that comes from Simon Sinek. And I think it's really important to focus on the why, you know, what is the value that you are delivering to customers? And that comes through storytelling. Um, You know, people don't typically come and buy a product just because of the features it has. They, They buy a product because of the value it delivers. So it's really important to think about what is the end to end story that I need to tell and you need to make sure that the product that you deliver, you can actually show that story. So it's important to start with that at the very beginning because it's going to guide the solution that you build. You should obviously focus on building a solution that solves the problems of your customers and the job stories that your product team has outlined. But if you can't tell a cohesive, compelling story at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard to sell that to people when you actually do take it to market. Is that because they don't understand it or it just won't resonate or what makes it hard to sell? Yeah, it it definitely depends on, I guess, the the magnitude of the thing that you're taking to market or announcing. You know, there are simple features which don't require you to tell a story. There are things that people know that they need. A good example uh, might be like automatically assigning conversations to a particular team or teammate. People know that they need that. You don't really need to tell a story around it. You can benefit from telling a story, but people know that they need that particular feature. But when you ship new inventions um, or a completely new take on solving a problem that people have, you do need to tell a story to help people understand why they need it and why your solution is a better approach. Um, so it really, it does depend on the magnitude or the size of the thing right. that you're building. So or like in the case of like rooting or, or like a, uh, those sort of features where people basically want them and I, I kind of, and you're not necessarily changing behavior, you, then you don't need to tell a new story in a sense. It's like, hey, that thing you thought we'd have, we now have it. Or, hey, that thing you thought would work now works. Uh, whereas when you're actually looking to change customer behavior, that's when you kind of need something stronger than just uh, here, this thing is now present in the product. Exactly. You need to... You need to convince people why they should invest the time changing their behavior. And as we know, changing people's behavior is incredibly hard. So you need to convince them that, hey, the way that you've been doing things, it's either wrong or it's actually not the best way that you could be doing it. So that's where storytelling is important to capture their attention and encourage them to invest time in learning more. How does it work when like you have a concept of a story and you're trying to keep that, I guess, consistent while also developing the product? Obviously, product development is not linear like you know you learn the information you adapt you change things you scope in more stuff you scope out some stuff are you constantly rewriting the press release or do you try to minimize that or what's going on there yeah so i think first of all it's important to uh, define what we mean by the story and there's there's two different stories in my mind 
Um, there's the story that for your bigger announcements or your entirely new products that you're taking to market, there's a story that the media and the press are going to latch onto, and that they're going to, there's this particular story or a narrative that they're going to find interesting and they're going to want to write about. Um, but then there's the story that you're actually going to tell the people who are going to buy this thing. And that's what you should be focused on from the very beginning. And uh, at Intercom, you know, we're fortunate to have a pretty good process in place as it comes to building product. And everything that we build starts with what we call an intermission, which is our quirky name for a project brief. Um, and its goal is to give the product team and, and in our case, the marketing team a shared understanding of what we're building and why. And more recently, we've started to inject marketing into that process. So in that intermission, we have a section that talks about the story that we want to tell once we have built a solution. And um, the reason for that is we want to have alignment between the product team and the marketing team such that throughout the development process, we can constantly check as we're designing the solution and making decisions around scope about what stays in or what needs to get dropped in order to meet a specific deadline if we have one we can revisit and make sure that we're not breaking the story that we want to tell which is communicating that value that are going to help people understand why they should buy your product um, so i think it's important to you know separate the press angle from the actual story that you want to tell to your customers and your prospective customers um, and in order to get there uh, it's important that you have a really strong understanding of the competitive landscape so before you can even write your story, um, you need to have a strong understanding of what problem you're solving and why. And our product team does a great job of understanding that by talking to our customers. Um, but you also want to look at other solutions that might solve that problem or might have a, a product that could be hired for that particular job that needs to get done. So you'll want to go ahead and conduct a really in-depth competitive analysis based on who you know you're competing against. You want to look at uh, who else has it? How do they describe it? How do they position it? Um, how does it work? And then from that, you can start to form opinions on where do we win and where do we lose? And from that analysis, what you're going to walk away with is hopefully a set of unique selling points that are going to help you formulate that story and that pitch that you're going to want to tell when you do take it to market. Yeah. You sort of, you distinguish the, the thing we'll say to media from the thing we'll say, say to our customers. And obviously it makes sense to me intuitively that what we're saying to our customers is, is actually the practical sort of like, here's what you can now do with Intercom. Um, is, cynically, I kind of feel like is the stuff we say to the media is that like the sort of the more flashy stuff, or is it just the stuff that's more has more of an angle, or there's more news to it, or is it more trendy, or how do you pick out that piece? Yeah, I guess it depends. It it all comes down to timing, and you know, the media will often, uh, as it pertains to SaaS companies, they'll definitely talk about funding. Yeah. Um, if you have a round of funding yeah, to yeah. announce, you'll definitely get coverage from that. Yeah. Um, but as it pertains to your product updates, you really do need to latch on to a trend. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and it all comes down to timing. So what is the trend that people are talking about or there's a lot of talk about in the industry at that particular point in time? Um, you know, right now, there's a huge trend around messaging. Right. And uh, so that is potentially something that if we have an announcement from Intercom, we might yeah. want to latch on to. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So if you have this story, what's going through your mind when you decide the marketing site should like lead with a screenshot or it should lead with a video or it should lead with a cartoon or it should lead with just a lot of text or like, is it a conscious trade-off you make? Does it make sense sometimes to do screenshot first and other times to do like long elaborate story? We have pretty long pages, um, but uh, but like we also definitely change it up a bit. Like how do you sort of decide and how and why do you chop and change? I think it kind of to go back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about the size or the magnitude of this thing that you're shipping or building. Um, 
if it's something that people are immediately going to understand and they're going to grasp, like uh, we talked about assignment rules as one, then lead with the screenshot. Right. Uh, There's no need to kind of paint a picture and tell a bigger story around that. People know they want it, they need it. Show them that you have it. It's just self-explanatory, right? Yeah, exactly. And then there's other things which require you to take a step back and kind of frame the problem and your solution to that problem. Um, And that's where you might want, and these are typically more complex problems. Um, And that's where you might want to use other visuals like illustration to kind of get rid of all the UI and the Chrome and just focus on painting the solution to the problem that you're solving. Um, So it really depends on how complex the problem you're solving is. So if you think of like the, you know, standard yield product marketing site for like, you know, whatever app you see on Product Hunter, they pop out OIC or whatever. You're always going to see like there's a screenshot on the right, there's a sign up button on the left, and it's like you know it's like three words like you know ticket tracking reinvented or like email revisited for 2016 or whatever. Is that basically like the lowest common denominator of product marketing, or like is it wrong unless your product is pretty self-explanatory? Is that right? Yes and no. I, you know, I think we've spoken about this kind of concept before, Des, where sometimes people skip the job altogether. Right. And they they know what they want, they have a really good understanding of what they need and they have and they search for a specific set of words. Yeah. Uh and when people skip the job and they know exactly what they want, show them what yeah. they want. Like I'm looking for bug tracking. So they're gonna click in and they see it a screen and it has a, like an obvious open ticket and yeah. they see it seems to have all the buttons that do all the things and they're like, All right, that's what I wanted. Uh, yeah, or you know, a, a point of contention within Intercom is how we describe our acquire product. Yeah. Um, there's this existing product category that is live chat. Right. And while, you know, our product is not just live chat, it's definitely how a lot of people today think about products mm-hmm. in that landscape. And we so we describe it that way. But there are some people who don't actually know that they should be putting something like Intercom on their website so they can talk to visitors because everyone yeah. who comes to your site is an opportunity mm-hmm. for a sale. So uh, it really depends on the audience. So I think it has its place. Right. Um, but you should be very thoughtful about when you use, you know, screenshots and really bare bones marketing yeah. versus telling a bigger story. I guess, you know, you've had a long career in marketing. You've kind of seen both sides of like the SaaS revolution in a sense. So if I was to say like, you know, in a world pre-cloud dominance, we had like effectively shrink-wrapped software or like pseudo-shrink-wrapped. And by that, I mean like it was released once a year, regardless of whether or not they had to press CDs. Today, you know, every single time I open the App Store app on my phone, I'm getting like 60, 70 updates to all the different products that are out there. Um, I presume that's triggered some sort of repercussions in terms of how you think about marketing. What's happened there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll back up a little bit and talk about my experience at Atlassian. Um, you know, I, I started at Atlassian in... Uh, 2008 um, at a time where you know cloud wasn't even really a thing I think Salesforce were just starting to take off at that point and um, all of our products at the time uh, were shipped um, in a fashion where we would have a big point release uh, probably two sometimes three times a year if you're on the Jira team maybe once a year Uh, sorry I had to take a stab at Jira there (laughs) (laughs) but um, what that meant was you know we were given a collection of things that the product team had decided that they were going to build and they were all bundled together in a big point release like Confluence 4.1 or your Confluence 5.0. And it would be a collection of 10 to 12, sometimes even more features that marketing would be given and then try, we would need to then create a narrative or a story around those 12 Mm -hmm. or so things. And um, that presented a really big challenge because not all of those 12 things or 15 things made sense together. Um, 
sometimes you'd have a, a common theme or a couple of themes that you could tell a story around. But what it meant was you'd focus on two to three, maybe four things. We would build a box around that, you know, mm-hmm. the box that we'd put on the shelf and the story that we wanted to tell around those things. But then everything else was kind of like forgotten about. And that means that some of the important things that you ship that might be relevant to existing customers or even prospective customers just get lost amongst all the noise. Just don't make the story. They just don't make the story because they distract from it uh, or they make it confusing. What's an example? I mean, like, in, like, would this be like, all right, we've got four features around productivity and then we also have like a lot of new stuff around permissions and composition and all this. But like, we're going to tell this productivity story this time. Is, is it that sort of thing? Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I go back to uh, the example, I think it was Confluence 4.3. And um, we had uh, tasks that you could put into pages and then uh, reporting around those tasks and then um, a new mobile app. And we were able to construct this narrative around um, productivity. But then we had a bunch of features that we'd added to the editor that were really important and really, you know, uh, top voted feature requests from existing customers. But they didn't make the cut because they didn't fit into that productivity narrative. Right. Um, so uh, we've now since moved on to a world where um, we have lots of things to talk about and then the challenge then becomes which ones do we shout about and which ones do we not shout about uh when you're only getting two to three opportunities a year to shout you yeah, shout on each and every one of them uh, but when you have in some cases like intercom a hundred things to shout about you can't shout about each and every one of them because people will stop listening to you so like what do you do in a sense i mean it sounds obviously you're gonna like sort of prioritize or pick your battles or whatever but like how do you make those decisions in a sort of informed way so we've created a, a pretty simple framework uh, that we use at Intercom to help classify the things that we're building. Um, we call it you know, a launch priority level. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's got two axes. Yeah. Uh, on your y-axis, you have uh, innovation. Is the thing that we're building a new invention? Uh, is it solving a problem in an entirely new way? Yeah. Or is it a me too feature? Is yeah. it plugging a hole or filling yeah. a gap in our product today? Yeah. And on the x-axis, you have value. Is this thing that we're shipping mostly valuable to our existing customers and it's something that is going to retain customers? Or does it present an opportunity to attract an entirely new set of customers? So we have this uh, kind of framework that we use to classify an announcement as either a P1, a P2, a P3, or a P4. Right. Um, So to give a couple of quick examples, a P1 this is your big announcement. These are the things that you really want to shout about. It's either a brand new product or a uh, new invention that solves a problem in an entirely new and better way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are the things that are going to attract new customers and then new inventions, and they present your biggest opportunity to attract customers. So you really want to shout about those. Uh, In the top left of the quadrant, where you are building a new solution to a problem, uh, but it's mostly only going to be relevant to your existing customers, you're probably not going to get press coverage on that. Um, but it's still something that you want to communicate, but you're going to focus on telling that story to your existing set of customers. So we have this classification system, and it becomes really valuable in helping you understand what level of investment in marketing do we put into each announcement that we make, and how do we make sure that we're not shouting all the time. Yeah. What's an example of a recent P1 we've been through? So a good example of a, a recent P1 would be our Smart Campaigns release. Uh, it was a new feature that we'd added to our engaged product. And when I say feature, it's actually a collection of features that were yeah. bundled into this thing that we called smart campaigns. Um, but the reason we classified it as a P1 was um, we believe that it was solving a problem that marketers had in an entirely new way. And looking at the competitive landscape of marketing automation tools, we'd actually gone back to first principles and we'd really solve the problem that people had. 
Um, so it, it was a new invention from that sense. And it was also an opportunity for us to attract new customers because it was actually an area of our product that was preventing people from using Engage in the past. So we treated smart campaigns as a P1 for those reasons. And then for P4, like, is this where we just have our changes log just to make sure that we have a means of telling people it? Yeah, you've got to classify. Uh, everything needs a classification. So yeah. a P4 is kind of a catch-all for everything else that might be a minor improvement to an existing feature or uh, a particularly important fix to an existing feature that uh, redesigns it in a way that it probably should have been designed in the first place. Yeah. That's a way for us to categorize everything. And it's something that we tell everyone about using our yeah. public change log that lives inside the Intercom app and also it's publicly on the web. But it does so in a very non-intrusive way. Um, the other classification that I think is, is particularly interesting is there's times when you have me too features. So those, those gaps um, that you're filling in your product that are either preventing people from using your product in the first place or the reason people leave and they graduate to another product. Um, so you've got these P2s that are me too features, but they actually do present an opportunity for you to attract a new set of customers. And, and I'm going to go back to our assignment rules feature there as an example, because it was definitely a me too feature. I believe yeah. we solved it in a better way, the yeah. problem in a better way, but because it allowed bigger customers to use Intercom for the support job, it actually presented an opportunity for us to attract a new segment of customers. Right. So there are times when you're gonna be filling gaps and you are gonna be shipping me too features, but they do present an opportunity for you to tell a good story around them. To what degree is it still true in SaaS companies that like marketing only gets one chance to make that impression? In Intercom, our product team gets more than one chance to roll out a feature. They get many chances. Sometimes they need them all. Um, <laughs> but to what degree is it true that we, that in marketing, we still only get one shot? I think it's very true. Uh, so, you know, one of the things we like to tell our teams, is, as you know, internally does at, at Intercom, is that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And uh, I think a, a classic example here that we're probably all familiar with is the release of Apple Maps. Uh, it was a flagship feature uh, that was part of the story that was iOS 6 uh, that Scott Forstall got up on stage and presented to the audience at WWDC. Um, but unfortunately for Apple, uh, it was it was pretty much an utter failure, um, mostly because the product just didn't work in the way that they had described it when they announced it. Uh, and so that's where it's very important. That's, you know, it's a good reminder that it's very important that your product that you ship needs to live up to this marketing story that you're right. telling. And, uh, you know, I think for Apple, Google Maps, sorry, all Apple Maps did was remind people how good Google Maps yeah. is. I think it didn't help them that that was the same week that Google Maps announced that they were mapping the Great Barrier Reef, I think, <laughs> as well. Like it was a, it's quite a dichotomy of, uh, of exactly. like quality. Um, so like, you know, one conclusion of that is that we, you know, we, you just don't get to iterate on marketing in public. I mean, you do in the sense of you can A/B test your homepage and stuff like that. But when it comes to big bang announcements, you are going to communicate something to a lot of people at the same time, and you know, media and vi homepage visitors from various different sites that all land and see the same thing. There's no point tweaking that the day after, right? It's it, yeah, you really do have one chance, and yeah. I think you know, um, you will make some mistakes, and you'll learn from those mistakes, and it's important that you don't continue to make them because, you know. The more times that you announce things and the more times that you either underwhelm people or you let people down, the less likely that they are to trust you in the future or even pay attention to you in the future. Right, right. So going back to where we started, you joined us as a marketing team of one. Most 
of our listeners and readers are startups who are probably just after hiring or about to hire their first ever marketer. Some of them are cynical, wary, scared. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to expect. But whatever about those folks, what's your advice to the marketer coming into a company as the first significant marketing hire? That's a good question. I think it's very important to start off with that you have a clear understanding and set of expectations with whoever you're reporting to. Obviously, at a company the size of Intercom, when I joined, that happened to be our CEO, Owen McCabe. Having a very clear understanding with them, you know, what are the three things and make it three things max? What are the three things that you should be focused on from the very get-go? Um, that's incredibly important. Um, and uh, to give you a sense of what those are, because I think, you know, to be helpful for someone making their first marketing hire, the first was to uh, put a framework and process in place of how we make product announcements. And we've, we've talked a lot about that yeah. today. Um, you know, you've got a, probably have a product team and they're building great new things and they're shipping things all the time. You want to make sure people know about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was number one. Tell the world about the great things that we're shipping. Number two was figure out how do we describe and position this thing that is in a comp. And that's an ongoing project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it continues to evolve as we better understand the jobs that people are hiring our products for and we improve those products that we have today and we build new products. So get your positioning and your messaging right was number two for us. And then number three was, all right, work out how do we build a marketing team? Who do we need to hire next? I always give the advice if you're a product first company, start off by hiring someone in product marketing. And there's two reasons for that. The, the first reason is that someone with a solid background in product marketing coming from another product first company, Atlassian's a good example here, is going to have experience working with all the other functions within marketing. Uh, When people say marketing, it's actually a loaded term. Mm -hmm. Um, People think of marketing as one team. It's not. At Intercom, it's six teams that all fall under this umbrella that is marketing. So if you find someone that comes from a product first company with a product marketing background, they're going to have the knowledge of how a marketing team works because they work with events and they work with content and they work with demand gen to take their product to market. They're also going to be able to help you tell that story and craft that narrative that people are going to be attracted to, people are going to uh, latch onto when they're looking to hire a product for a particular job. And you want to get that right before you start to spend money in other areas uh, because there's no point spending money to acquire customers if they're going to come to your site and not resonate with or understand the thing yeah. that you're trying to sell them. Yeah, there's certainly like there's a, a logical order in which you do things. It's probably not a million miles. It's kind of almost like working backwards through the funnel. Like if you literally, if you started a product, what comes right before product? Product marketing. And what comes right before product? You know, you almost want to work backwards through the funnel in that regard, it sounds like. Definitely. And so as a startup, how do you find great marketers? How, do we, how does the next company find their Matt Hodges? Uh, so I think I'm going to use uh, the reason I joined Intercom as a kind of tip here. Other than Intercom having a great product and me seeing a opportunity to come in and add a lot of value being the first marketer, what really attracted me was the people that I was going to get the opportunity to work with. And I wouldn't have known that uh, other than you know interviewing with yourself and Owen if uh, I didn't find the inside Intercom blog. Um, so one a piece of advice I would give is share the lessons that you've learned and share the way that you think and the thoughts that you, are, you have on how to approach marketing uh, because it will help like-minded people find you and hopefully encourage them to want to work with you. Because at the end of the day, I think people just want to work with other great people and learn. I think that's a good place to leave it. Matt Hodges, thanks very much. Thanks, Des. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. 
For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.